Welcome to the BT Focus podcast dedicated to the behavior technician experience and the delivery of ABA services. Welcome back to the BT Focus podcast. My name is Dan and I'm joined by Victoria DeShazer. So nice to be here with you again, Dan. Uh, so nice that I've actually made it into the session, Victoria. We were having some technical difficulties this morning and it was hilarious because I kept logging in and logging out of the session. And every time I logged back in, I had a new device or a new microphone. And Victoria was like, how many do you have, Dan? <laughs> I had quite a bit, but we're in, we're ready to start. We're close to Christmas. Are you ready? Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, we had summer all week and now it's cold again. So it's like Michigan's finally preparing for Christmas. And then you travel for Christmas, right? You I come am. Back our way. I'm coming back your way, close to Michigan, which is great because I'll probably do some skiing in Michigan when I'm there. Yeah, I absolutely Any love favorite, skiing and snowboarding. Favorite places? Um, to be honest, my most favorite place is in Cadillac, Michigan. Uh, I don't remember the name of the resort. It's been a while, but I know it's Cadillac, Michigan. Yeah. Um, it's about a six-hour drive, but it's definitely worth it. I remember one time I went with my brother. We got up at 3 in the morning drove six hours until 9 a.m., skied from 9 a.m. to 5 a.m., and then drove back home. <laughs> oh, my goodness. How'd you have the energy after that? <laughs> we were, like, halfway through the slopes and kind of like, okay, maybe this wasn't the best idea. Also, <laughs> it was 50-something degrees out, and so the snow was melting on the hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. It wasn't <laughs> the best idea, but anyways. <laughs> uh, yeah, what about you? Are you traveling for Christmas? Um, so we're actually keeping it really low key this year. Um, we are just kind of having like intimate family thing and yeah, we're just going to kind of enjoy Christmas with the three of us and have some fun. Yeah. And, um, I'm excited for this Christmas. I know it's going to be a lot of fun for all of us, a little bit different, you know, cause we're still yeah. pandemic, but, um, definitely something that we'll enjoy and will be a well rewarded break. Um, so yeah, let's get into our topic today, which will be implementing stimulus control transfer procedures. This will be C8 in our task list, and we'll be going through the procedures, most likely focusing on stimulus fading, but we'll be talking a little bit about stimulus control, stimulus control transfer, um, those stimulus control transfer procedures as well as most importantly, there will focus on stimulus fading. And then if you guys are regular listeners, you know we'll be asking some questions at the end of today's podcast, which will be great. So welcome, thank you for being here. Let's go ahead and start off with what is stimulus control? When you think of stimulus control, what comes to your mind? Um, so stimulus control, it means that the stimulus is controlling what behavior occurs after the it's in the presence of somebody, right? So our definition is when an individual behaves one way in the presence of a given stimulus and another way in its absence or in the presence of another stimulus. So we teach this through discrimination training. We do. Great example. Um, and that's the exact definition there. So stimulus control is something that happens on our daily life a lot. Um, can you think of any examples where stimulus control is something that you're affected by? Yeah. So... I can think of a couple different examples. Um, so, you know, 
dinner time and nighttime can be really chaotic with a almost seven month old. So a lot of times you're getting home, you feed the baby, bath time, bedtime, and like that's like a couple hour process. And you're like, oh man, did I did I eat? How much did I eat today? <laughs> did you eat today? You know. So what I was for a long time, I would put the baby to sleep, and I'd be like. Like I would be starving all of a sudden. I wasn't hungry 20 minutes earlier, but as soon as the baby went to sleep, I was starving. And I realized because for weeks, months on end, I was going and making myself, and I love this, I make popcorn, add the movie theater butter, like the extra butter, the white cheddar seasoning, and then I mix in Sour Patch Kids within the popcorn. And so I was having that as a snack probably every night for a couple weeks. I wasn't even realizing it. It just sounded good. And then one night I was like just starving as soon as I put the baby down. And I was like, oh my goodness, I want some popcorn. I was like, because you've been eating popcorn like this for the last <laughs> three weeks straight as soon as the baby goes to bed. Like, so this was some stimulus control that was occurring. Like as soon as the baby was in bed, like my hands were free and like I could eat something, you know? So that that was my, <laughs> that was my uh, example there. I love it. And um. I don't think I've ever tried Sour Patch Kids and popcorn together. Oh, but thinking oh. about the chemical makeup, I guess if you eat the popcorn, it kind of butters your taste buds. So it dulls the, the sour of the Sour Patch Kids. And so yeah, you get more so it sounds It sounds gross. Like somebody told me to try it. I'm gonna, it sounds gross. But you have the sweet, you have the salty, you have the tart. So you have it all and just try it. Everybody try it. It's so good. <laughs> I have to try it. it reminds me of Remy from Ratatouille when he tried the cheese and the grapes together. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, you know what? I have ne- I've not tried it. I love Sour Patch Kids and I love popcorn. Well, I know. Both, of- <laughs> <laughs> Both of us are popcorn fans and Sour Patch Kids fans, which is great. But the thing that I'm not a fan of when it comes to Sour Patch Kids is you can't eat too much of it without losing your taste buds. So it sounds like in this scenario, <laughs> you can eat more without Limit worrying. yourself. <laughs> you can limit yourself. Okay. <laughs> you put a couple handfuls in, you mix it up, and then you just get that perfect bite. <laughs> okay. I'll have to try it. I think that sounds amazing. Um, and so back to our topic here. Uh, if you think about this, and I want you to apply this to your life as well, think about how stimulus control is affecting you. And think about it in terms of, we talk, we're talking about food here, but it can be settings, it can be individuals, it can be time of day. There's many different things that we have stimulus control with. With our clients, a lot of the times when we talk about stimulus control, we refer to that ability to pair with them as a reinforcer. That way we get more of a work with you attitude and work with us attitude when it comes to actually running our DTTs or NETs. And we're going to move on to what is stimulus control transfer. Um, So we just talked about what is stimulus control. Now, what about transferring it? So the exact definition we're going to look at here is the transfer of stimulus control occurs when behavior initially controlled by one SD comes under the control of a different SD. A little confusing there. Let me repeat that. So transfer of stimulus control occurs when behavior initially evoked, controlled by one SD, comes under the control of a different SD. Do you have an example here that you can think of? Yeah. So like when the client was appropriately responding um, to that target with one SD and we want to we want to um, transfer the control of the stimulus. So this is an example, just a general example, not personal example, but so say we're saying come here. And every time we say come here, we're physically guiding 
the um the client to us and once they come to us we you know offer verbal praise and a high five okay so eventually we say come here and we then instead of a full physical prompt we use a partial physical prompt and we um you know just lightly guide the client and allow them to walk to us without a lot of physical prompting and we still offer the same reinforcer verbal praise and a high five eventually that stimulus control is transferred to just the SD come here and they don't need any additional prompting or assistance to come to us. And then eventually the natural environment takes over. And when they, you know, we say come here, maybe they just come up to us when we walk into the room. Great example. So to sum that up, when a client is not responding appropriate to stimuli, appropriately to stimuli, we may add prompts to the new instruction, target, or SD to help teach the client to appropriately respond to that target. When adding these prompts, the prompt is actually controlled, as Victoria said, by the response, not the SD. In the natural environment, we want the SD to control that response. So we really do need to transfer the control from the prompt to the SD. And the example that I have working with a client in this scenario is I am a huge reinforcer for my client, as it should be. Same with all of you behavior technicians out there. One of the things that we focus on a lot on is making sure that when you show up to your client's session, your client enjoys being around you. They're so happy to see you. And so we do this through a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different techniques. One of those is pairing. And we're consistently pairing ourselves with reinforcing items. So it's important with stimulus control and stimulus transfer to be able to identify those reinforcing items and have those available as well. And for me, one of the things that I noticed is that when I'd be working with my client, if I asked my client to do something around the house, um, hit, hit, it's not his favorite thing to do. Chores never are, right? Which is probably why my dishes were just finished yesterday and it's been a week. Um, and so I'll ask my client to do something like pick something up or take dishes to the sink. And because there has been that pairing and that reinforcing period of time with my client, my client, I have that stimulus control. So we're looking at controlling these stimuli in so many different scenarios. A lot of the times when it's with our clients, we're setting them up for success here. Now we have several different procedures that we follow. Can you talk to me about one of the main procedures we follow when it comes to stimulus control transfer? Yeah, so it's prompt feeding. So this is just the gradual remover, removal of a prompt over several teaching trials until the SD alone evokes the response. And the learner is able to respond accurately and independently to the target SD. So this is used um, for uh, feeding response prompts. Yes, and you might see these procedures evoked in different ways, such as you might see least to most or most to least. This is dependent on your supervising clinician's plan. So we're setting our learner up for getting that independent, correct response with the least intrusive prompt there. For example, we could have verbal to model to partial physical to full physical. And typically, this is used when prompting a previously learned skill. However, it can be used when teaching a new response as well. It's also, as I stated, used to promote the greatest level of independence that the learner is capable of and to help to avoid that prompt dependency. We've talked a little bit about prompt dependency in the past, and I always say this as well. Prompt dependency is like quicksand. Once you're in it, it's really difficult to get out of it. And so least to most sets you up and also your learner up 
so that we get those independent correct responses in a manner that is the most successful. Now, what about the antithesis of this? What, what about MTL, most to least? What are we yeah. looking at? So this is where assistance gradually decreases as the correct response occurs. So typically used when teaching a new skill, sometimes we call this airless learning. So we'll use a stronger prompt, which is then reduced over time until prompting is completely faded. So um, we'll maybe have to start with a full physical prompt at first, right? Maybe this is brand new to the client. They've never done it before. So they need a lot of physical assistance at first. We're going to continue to give opportunities as we represent this trial throughout the session, over the next days, over the next week. And we're going to attempt to give a lesser prompt each time we represent that trial. So if for trial one, we presented a physical prompt for the client to get the correct response, next trial, we're going to try a partial physical prompt. Now we say, still may need a full physical prompt and we still have to go back up, but we're going to give those opportunities so that the client is getting to the point where we're not missing it if they have, or if they are at a point where they've learned um, the skill and they don't need the full physical assistance. So we want to give opportunities for independence as they're learning this new skill, even if they did start out with those full physical prompts. So we want to be sure to fade those prompts. So we fade from full physical to partial physical to gesture model to a verbal to eventually the SD having the control to eventually the natural environment having the control, right? So this can also be used um, when a combination of prompts are required to teach a skill and whether faded in tandem or one at a time, um, the process is the same. One of the things that I highly value about a characteristic that you have, Victoria, is you're able to think about the present moment and how you're responding then. A lot of the times, I know for me as a behavior technician, I was thinking so much about the end process that I was getting caught up in the middle. And so, I mean, you just displayed this. It's very important to think about the end, yes, but also to be think about to think about what you're doing in that moment and being careful that you're not overprompting. You're looking for that correct response. So don't get stuck in a moment where you want to reach that end goal, whatever that might be. Instead, start to be malleable and learn with the client in that moment and respond how they're responding. Because if the client is correcting, correctly responding halfway through this prompting sequence, then you can step back. You don't need to continue that prompting sequence, which I think is really important here. And it's something that you show it, and it's something that I value as well. And as a behavior technician, it's something that I really had to work on. I was so focused on getting the correct prompting sequence that I wasn't responding to my clients' responses. And so I was falling into a prompt dependency, and I, you, I, we want you guys to avoid that. Thank you, Dan. And yeah, no, thank you so much. I just want to add to that. No, absolutely. At first, like you get so caught up, you want the client to get the correct response. So we go in and we really want to help. We really want to teach. And a lot of times that means full physical prompts at first, but at some point they, the light bulb goes on, they get it. They understand what we're asking them to do. And we may not see the light bulb go on at first. Right. So we're still fully physically prompting words. And they're like, I got this, right? And so we just have to kind of step back, test the waters, right? See if they can do it there themselves without all of the additional prompts, right? Because they want them to do this skill independently. So I think that it takes a lot of like just 
seeing it a lot of times. Like I remember a couple different instances where I was giving those intrusive prompts. And then one time my client just did it with, it was, you know, just, they, they just happened to do it, whatever the skill was. And I had it prompted them at all. And I was like, whoa, I had been prompting and they can do this independently. Like, so they'll, so sometimes we just have to like trust our clients and give those opportunities, but it, that, that skill in itself takes time to learn because we are looking for that correct response so often. Yes. And I, I love that example. And I can relate so much to that on so many different levels as well, where I was so focused on launching into that prompt sequence that I wasn't giving my client an independent opportunity to respond. Plus also it factors in waiting there, which I mean, a lot of the times waiting can be one of the hardest parts. Stepping back, just observing um, can be a skill that I had to teach myself and that I'm sure other behavior technicians out there had to teach themselves as well. And if you're a new behavior technician, waiting is something that can be difficult to do, especially if you're ready to jump in and get into that prompting sequence. But making sure that your client has that opportunity is really important here because you might be surprised. Your client might be gaining these skill acquisitions faster than you think. So there's this balance there. And I think it'll come with time. It'll come with experience, but also make sure that you conversate with your, your BCBA, your supervising clinician. Ask them about what that balance should look like. Ask them about your prompt sequence. Ask them about your prompt fading. And they'll train you specifically on that because we know that these scenarios aren't an all fit one situation. There are so many different programs that you guys work on in each of those programs that we're doing have a prompting sequence that could vary, very, very subtly, but still vary. And so working with your supervising clinician on a weekly basis, having them run prompt sequences and prompt fading with you is important because that's how you will learn and that's how you will learn the fastest. So great examples there. Let's move on to a prompt delay. So we have two examples of prompt delay and we're going to superficially cover this because um, they're not something that you'll use quite frequently, but you may. So prompt delay, we're increasing the amount of time between the SD and the prompt. For example, the technician will present an SD and then wait a specific amount of time and then they will present the prompt if the response is not made. So like I had said, we'll look at two con constant time delay and progressive time delay. And I want you to keep in mind that both of these are a systematic procedure that will be used to teach strategies of waiting on the learner's response. So let's start with constant time delay. This begins with the presentation of the SD and there is no delay to the prompt. In the next trial, the SD is presented followed by a fixed delay of a certain amount of seconds and then the prompt. So that's constant time delay. What about progressive time delay? Yeah, so this begins with the presentation of the SD and no delay. For each subsequent trial, you extend the delay by one second until the client is responding independently to just the SD. So these time delays are a little bit deeper when it comes to prompt delays. And one of the things that I wanna focus on here is that if you ever reach a situation or you're ever in a scenario where you're not sure what to do and there's a plan in place, there's a reason why your supervising clinician has put that plan there. So ask them about it. If they are not there for supervision, they are just an email, text, or phone call away. So email, 
phone call or text them, ask them about it. If you see something in your plan that's a constant template and you don't know how to run that, make sure that you reach out to your supervising clinician and they'll outline for you what that would look like. So we're going to move on to stimulus fading uh, because those prompt delays are a little bit deeper, like I said. So in terms of stimulus fading, prompts that have been paired with the stimulus are gradually reduced and then removed. For example, prompts are faded, made smaller, lighter, less salient. The goal here is to enable the learner to respond without prompts. However, if fading is too rapid, the learner may cease to respond. So in this scenario, like I had stated earlier, there's this balance. In terms of fading too rapidly, alternatively, we could also fade too slowly, and the individual may become prompt dependent, which I'm sure, Victoria, you have experienced prompt dependency. Um, I know I have, and a lot of the times it's specific, condition specific to the user, um, but right, <laughs> Right now, I love it because it reminds me so much of, well, when I'm working with my client, it reminds me so much of my childhood. So right now, my client has picked up this, this mannerism, this behavior of not actively listening, but responding with a yep to let me know that he may be actively listening. And I love it because my dad would do this all the time to my mom. <laughs> and my mom would, my mom's a talker and she would talk my dad's ear off and my dad's so quiet. And so my dad would just respond with a yep. Yep, to let her know that he was still present, but not actively listening. For my client, though, he was looking for that prompt dependency. He was looking for me to kind of give him the answer. So he wanted me to know that, yep, I'm still listening, but yep, yep, I don't know the answer. Like, maybe you can tell me. And so prompt dependency is something, especially when you're inside of it, can be very difficult. What are your experiences we hear? Yeah, so... I think that um, prompt dependency can definitely, you know, both ends of the spectrum. If we give too many prompts and we, you know, kind of create the situation of prompt dependency, or if we don't give enough prompting, and then we're probably faced with um, a little bit of maladaptive behaviors occurring because the client gets frustrated. They don't know what we're asking. They don't know. So, I mean, I feel, find myself sometimes there's ebb and flows, right? no matter how long you're in this field, there's going to be ebbs and flows of this, these scenarios occurring, right? And the great thing about ABA is that we're, um, we are cultivating behavior change. So if you find yourself to where you have cultivated this prompt dependency, there are ways to fix that, right? So that you can fade those prompts appropriately. If you have maybe um, elicited some maladaptive behavior because you're not prompting enough, there's ways to fix that, right? To cultivate it so that the client is learning the skill with the necessary prompts. Um, I think one, one phrase that we use a lot of times is um, the least intrusive but most effective prompt is what we're always looking for. So we always have this like spectrum, right, of prompting. We have prompt dependency over here, and then we have not enough prompting, which could lead to maladaptive behaviors. But in the middle, we have that least intrusive but most effective prompt. So I think that the, depending on the day, depending on the client, a lot of times that changes. So um, I think that it's going to be a lot of ebbs and flows. So I think a lot of times we talk about, oh, your, your client can be prompt dependent. But maybe that is that is displayed one day, but one day it may not be displayed like that the next day, right? Um, so we kind of we, we guys always we always have to remember that we're working with humans, <laughs> and while 
uh, like just as our behavior changes and we want help with certain things and don't want help with certain things that that can be a daily basis daily need our clients are the same way and so I think that's really important to just keep in mind sorry that was my tangent (laughs) no don't apologize that was an amazing tangent and I love that example and it recalls a lot of memories for me as well when I would show up to client's house and debrief with parents or guardian or family members, and they tell me that the client did not sleep very well the night before. They only got like two hours of sleep. I know that in that session, there's most likely going to be more prompts. So that ebb and flow makes a lot of sense to me. And a lot of the times in those scenarios, you will have to make micro decisions in those moments of how your session will be run, which is part of the autonomy that we, we give behavior technicians and that behavior technicians are set up for which is great because I know working with my client, if I'm placing a lot of demands on my client, my client's only had two hours of sleep, I will most likely see an increase in maladaptive behaviors. So I wanna avoid that. So taking a little bit of an easier day, applying a little bit more of those prompts would be okay in that scenario. But of course, when you're working with your clients and your supervising clinician and the care team, in that macro scenario, We're having careful evaluations of the learner's progress because when we're focusing on this fade, we want to ensure that it is accomplished at a desired rate. So on a macro level, your supervising clinician will be able to see specifically your prompt fading and let you know where we are in that rate if we need to increase or we need to decrease. And more importantly, as fading progresses, The goal is for removal of cues to be gradually enough that there are fewer errors occurring. So we ensure essentially that that prompt fading is happening in a balanced manner. But of course, when it all balances out, you guys will make micro decisions in your days, in your sessions, but we're relying on that data that you're taking. And that data will let your supervising clinician know on that macro level, how we're fading, how 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 our client is responding to that fading. Absolutely. We're going to recall back on making sure that we do have effective reinforcers present, especially during this prompt fading um, will help a lot. Now, in terms of an example for stimulus fading, can you think of one? I know you gave me an example already, but what about a program example? Uh, So when pairing a picture of a train with the word train, right? Over successive trials, so as the trials go on, the picture is going to remain the same, same size, same train. Um, But the font in the word train would fade until the word was no longer visible. So initially, we're pairing the picture with the word, right, train, the written word. And so as the trials go on, that word train is no longer visible. So when they see the train, it's just the picture of the train. Yep. And then eventually we would most likely want to tack that to that natural environment of clients seeing a train and tacting a train in the natural environment. Um, So that's the goal here. And that concludes our C8 implementing stimulus control transfer procedures. So we'll move on to our questions at the end. Um, Do you want to rock, paper, scissors to go first? All right. Ready? Okay. Rock, paper, Scissors, shoot. <laughs> All right, both good scissors, guys. All right, let's okay. do it again. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. <laughs> both did rock. Okay, we're, we're, we're ahead of each other, okay? All right, rock, 
paper, scissors, shoot. All right. Okay. All right. One. I got paper. <laughs> you got scissors. All right. Go ahead. You can All right. Okay. So number one, your client touches his nose when given the SD touch nose, touch foot, and touch head. Is your client demonstrating stimulus control? A, yes, or B, no? This one is no. And the reason why is because, let me look at the question. So your client touches his nose when given the SDs, touch nose, touch foot, and touch head. Is your client demonstrating stimulus control? So your client is using discrimination training here. So they're able to know that touch toes is different from touch foot and touch head. They're not using stimulus control here. Yes, exactly. All right. All right, um, number, two. number two is your turn, right? Okay. Yep. When presenting or when presented an array of three letters, E, S, and M, your client will only pick the letter S when given the SD, pick S. If the S card is two inches closer to the client than the other two cards. What is, what is likely exerting control over the client's response? Is it A, the SD, B, the stimulus prompt, C, both, or D, neither? Okay, so I'm gonna say B, the stimulus prompt, and I'll tell you why. It wouldn't be A, the SD, because that is staying the same every time the, the, the SD is being presented, right? Pick S is the same. So the SD is not really doing anything different. Maybe if one time I said, oh, pick S or, um, you know, increase my voice or the tone of my voice, it would um, then um, influence picking S. But in this case, the example says the card is two inches closer than the other two, two cards. So um, a gestural prompt or positional prompt here. So this would be the stimulus prompt that is um, controlling the client's response. Correct. Ding, ding, ding. All right. Number three. All right. You are presenting a maintenance program to your clients. They engage in an incorrect response initially. Which type of prompting procedure would you most likely use? A, most to least prompting, or B, least to most prompting? So that one would be least to most prompting. So we're getting an incorrect response initially. So we want to make sure that we're intervening with that prompting sequence as quickly as possible. So we're on track for getting that correct response there. So we want to use a least to most prompting sequence here. You got it. And I also think uh, least to most is most appropriate in this case too, because it is a maintenance program. It's not an acquisition program, right? They know this program. They've seen it before. They've mastered this program before. So we're not going to go in for with a full physical prompt. We're going to start with that verbal prompt because they know what they're doing. They just need a little additional help today. <laughs> yes, definitely. Thank you for focusing on that as well. A maintenance program is definitely something that you want to make sure that you're not using a most least. As you said, that criteria has been mastered. So definitely starting least to most. Thank you for that follow up. Yeah, that's great. That ends our podcast for the day. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. And for our next podcast, we will be covering C9, which will be those prompting procedures. So implementing prompt and prompt fading procedures. So we'll see you next time. Thank next you. Time. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the BT Focus podcast as we learn more about the stories and the science behind applied behavior analysis.